This episode of Life Behind Bars is brought to you by Westland Whiskey. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast half-full editor. We have a truly special treat for you. Recently, Dave Wongrich and I were joined by some special guests to discuss the global future of single malt whiskey and debate whether American single malt can ever challenge the single malt supremacy of scotch. Over glasses of Westland Gariana single malt whiskey, Dave and I were joined by Westland's co-founder, managing director and head distiller, Matt Hoffman, and from across the pond, award-winning half-full columnist, Becky Paskin, and pioneering Edinburgh bartender and bar owner, Ian McPherson. So pour yourself a glass of whiskey, enjoy this spirited debate. And afterwards, please share your thoughts by tweeting at Dave and me. Cheers. Thank you all for, for joining us tonight. Uh, you know, it's sort of an idea that we've been thinking about, you know, for, for a while about, you know, the rise of single malt as single malt is, you know, you know, being made all over the world these days, you know, from, you know, obviously... Scotland, Ireland, you know, America, Asia, you know, it's one of these questions that, uh, you know, Dave and I have, I, we've discussed before, but kind of like, what does the future hold for single malt? I mean, we spend most of our time looking backwards um, as historians and writers. We don't like to write forward, but um, predict the future, but here we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, you know, maybe we start out like talking about some of these, you know, We'll get to Scotch in a second, but it'd be interesting to get sort of the global perspective from Ian and Becky about like some of these upstarts for, uh, you know, and, and what you're seeing, you know, up in Edinburgh and in London and, and all over the UK. Uh, so in, ter- in terms of the distilleries opening in the UK, um, I, I guess I, I'll kick off that. So, I mean, so actually recently I just wrote a um, a paper about the um, expanding world of new world whiskey, which is essentially anything that's made outside of Scotland, America, Canada, Ireland, everywhere else. In fact, Japan as well, because Japan is making whiskey in the 1920s. So um, let's lump them in with old world as well. But now whiskey is made all over the place. In fact, it's made in something like um, over 35 countries worldwide, from Australia to Bolivia to Mexico, um, England, Wales. um, Also, obviously, America doesn't just make bourbon and rye, but um, single malt too. But what is so fascinating, I think, about the global whiskey industry now is there are so many different styles of whiskey being created. And a lot of the new distilleries that have come up over the last 10 years or so, they're kind of looking to Scotland for those traditional uh, distillation techniques that they're using because these are tried and tested. They obviously work and they offer them for centuries, but they're kind of putting their own stamp on it as well. So it's a kind of a whiskey that's a sense of face. It's their, um, it's it's the culmination of the people that have made it. It's their personalities and passions imbued with the local terroir and local culture and local ingredients and, and everything to do with that too. So um, essentially, really what you can do, you probably do it now, although the whiskey is quite young, but you can taste your way around the world and really get a sense of like every single country around the world maybe not every single one right now but it's getting there it's- yeah i guess for me talking about like forecasting more on a kind of financial side you know we're seeing this massive trade war going on with the us and europe you know so obviously there's a massive whopping 25 percent tariff each way for especially you know single malt specifically and obviously american whiskies american single malts the other way the UK just kind of starting to agree maybe to get rid of their tariff to kind of ease tensions and kind of build bridges with the US. But I mean, already we're looking at what, like a 30% fall in Scotch sales this year in the US with an even bigger 55% drop in American whiskey sales mm-hmm. in the UK. So, I mean, it's it's very interesting this, you know, because obviously we've seen like, you know, Westland's making really big inroads into those single malt categories and it's been amazing all their expressions. But now of all this changing things and especially for you guys trying to get into Europe now, there's just all these blocks that make it really hard for an independent, you know, startup company like yourselves doing that. Um, and then I guess looking at Scotland, Scotch, you know, we're we're kind of stuck in 
this sandwich cluster, shall I say, basically where we've got the US tariffs on one side, but also we have this annoying thing called Brexit happening where we're kind of now becoming quite isolated. So the worrying thing for Scotch is, yes, it will still be a global presence, but with the price it's going to have to come at, it, it could really slow down growth. I forgot all about Brexit. I haven't heard that word in years. I mean, <laughs> it's still going on with everything else going on. But do you think, I mean, I think, Becky, you, you alluded to like, how a lot of these distillers, you know, I think the new distillers, you know, first looked at kind of Scotland as as the model. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I would say that, and, and Matt and Dave, you know, maybe you guys want to look at this. Do you think that like, that's, that's no longer happening that like, we've gotten to the point where like, that's sort of the first generation. And now like, you know, people have sort of gone out on their own for single malt, like and doing stuff that the people in Scotland won't do and, and, and certainly can't do because of, of the tight regulations. Well, certainly I can, I can say from, from my point of view, there definitely seems to be a difference based on culture of the country that's making the whiskey, right? So even North America is a super good example. Um, you know, you can look here in the U S and there's 180 plus distilleries making single malt now in the U S uh, yeah, the number like literally grows every week. Um, and these, you know, these are not made up numbers. These are people who have joined the American Single Malt Commission, which is what we've done to create the standard of identity, literally the rules for the category. Um, so you have that, and then you compare like Canada, right? So the U.S., the way that we're approaching single malts, as a general rule, is much more innovative and in people putting their stamp on things. And then you compare that to Canada. There's also, you know, a relatively big single malt wave going there, especially in Western Canada, B.C., Alberta. Uh, but you know, uh, but all across the country as well. But they're more conservative. They're closer to Scotland. So, but that kind of mirrors, frankly, the the difference between the U.S. and Canada. The U.S. is more of its own animal culturally. Um, Canada is more closely linked to the U.K. A little bit more traditional in that sense. Um, so I think I think a lot of it comes down to culture. I don't know that there's a universal standard for saying like, you know, it used to be all trying to copy Scotland. And now it's all this. I think that's that's kind of true that there's been more confidence that countries moving away. But I think it's kind of a hybrid, uh, yeah. hybrid model now, where it, it's they're taking the the idea of uh, malt whiskey from from Scotland and Ireland, for that matter, and uh, saying okay, and then they're taking what they see in American uh, smaller distilling in, in terms of uh, of the the innovation and trying to find their own ways of, of mating those two together. So they're not going, you know, full on American with some of the American uh, staples that, that categorize American malts. I don't, I don't see a lot of people using a new Oak anywhere else, for instance, or, or using, you know, going straight for just new Oak. Maybe it'll be like a finish or something, but at the same time, they're, 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 they're definitely, uh, Using some of that freedom uh, to 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 go places that that Scotch has been maybe a little uh, inhibited from going, despite what some uh, wild hares want to do. Uh, so you know maybe we're we're getting a little bit of both in in you know in places like Sweden and and uh, Austria and Australia and New Zealand et cetera et cetera. I was going to say I think I think what's interesting particularly amongst like the new distillers that are cropping up in Europe is a lot of the people who don't have any experience in the whiskey industry, they're just passionate whiskey enthusiasts. And uh, they get some backing, they get financial backing, and they pull together a distillery. And what they're doing is making whiskey that's in the style that they would like to drink it. So maybe they've grown up on things like scotch, which is no longer maybe made to the same specifications as it was maybe back in the 1960s or 70s. So they're looking to recreate those kinds of flavors, but in their in their own way as well. So they're using techniques like um, direct mm-hmm. fired um, stills, which is a practice which isn't a common tool in Scotland anymore, though it used to be. Um, right. It was a, a obviously quite dangerous but there are distilleries now that are just using those kinds of techniques to (laughs) recreate the flavors that they like and in a way they're still looking to the scotch whiskey industry for those traditional techniques it's just the scotch whiskey industry isn't using a lot of those anymore 
I mean, you, you could also go down the um, partially Japanese route and actually just use our liquids in their blends and sell it as Japanese whiskey. <laughs> that, that's also another approach we can wow. as well. Wow. Opened up another front in the battle royale. It's very effective. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're open up another, uh, now we have our Japanese guests to take on Ian. No, unfortunately, we <laughs> don't, but that would be the main thing. Uh, you know, I, I think Japan's a really interesting case because obviously in the 1920s, as Becky pointed out, we're, we're going up on about 100 years or so of Japanese whiskey making, and, and the first person goes to Scotland literally to learn how to make whiskey, and mm -hmm. the distilleries have the beautiful, like, you know, pagoda tops, you know, that we, we see in Scotland, and you know, they make all this, you know, very scotch-like whiskey, but of course it doesn't particularly sell well in Japan. And they kind of, you know, Suntory kind of has to rethink everything and create a whole new sort of path for, for whiskey that they make. And I think in the last, really, I mean, we're, we're beginning to see a lot of it in America where we saw very little of it, but like it's really kind of, you know, a lot of different innovation and, and really interesting stuff that they're doing with different barrels and different woods. And we're seeing that, obviously. You could say for the first time, it's it's getting an identity of its own. Yeah. You know, and when it used to be imitation uh, scotch, imitation very good scotch, but, uh, and now it's, uh, now it's starting to, uh, as, as you said, uh, kind of break that mold because that was, uh, you know that wasn't giving them the, the 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 notice they were needing. That sets up the perfect one-two punch here. The the whiskey that we're all drinking tonight, the the Gariana, like isn't that the wood is is local, right? I mean that's from yeah, absolutely. But that's you know, and that's a that's a learning. So it's Gariana Five here, which is uh, a species of oak that only grows here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Quercus Gariana, you know, and that's that's something that. You know, there's a few species of oak that are used in the world of whiskey. Uh, Quercus alba, the American white oak, is used in every whiskey, basically, because it's all in every bourbon. And then it goes to be, you know, 90% of Scotch whiskey casks, casks or ex-bourbon casks, I think, or something like that. Um, but, you know, then there's a couple of European oaks. And then the Japanese, of course, debuted Mizunara oak, you know, and that was a big deal. So in many ways, we have a benefit of learning from the really 100-year Japanese example that you know they've kind of taken these steps along the way, and it's and it's come to an identity. Uh, and they said, okay, we can use this oak that's different than you know than American white oak. Well, they had to use it because it was World War II, and they couldn't get barrels from anywhere else. <laughs> that's right, absolutely. So they've done these things like over time because of things like World War II and a variety of other um, circumstances. And we've we've kind of taken all of that like learning, and we've condensed it. You know, we've said, okay. That hundred, like eighty-year part in the middle of that hundred years, where it was like the slow evolution to become what it is, uh, we just we just jumped that straight away. I think. And here I'm about to drop the hammer. Um, so, like in America, like you alluded, Matt, to the rules for single malt. Obviously, those are like the single malt commission has come up with them, right? But in Scotland, it's not self-imposed, right? The Scottish Whiskey Association rules with an iron fist right what is and what certainly is not scotch whiskey do you think that because i mean they've done such a wonderful job preserving what is scotch and creating like a magnificent product do you think ultimately my friends from across the pond that being so strict about what is and what is not scotch will ultimately hurt whiskey brands because they're not allowed to innovate in such wildly creative ways like the rest of the world See how I set that up? <laughs> um, <laughs> it was very diplomatic. Um, it, Ian, I'll, I'll jump in first, I think, um, and say that I, I, I do actually think that the Scotch whiskey regulations do allow for a, a, a decent level of creativity. There's like not say what type of yeast you should be using or the type of barley you should be using or right. um, what grain you should be using, for instance, or um, whether you should use new oak. And yeah, there are strict regulations um, basically there to ensure that Scotch whiskey will always taste like Scotch whiskey. And recently the, the regulations were changed so to allow for tequila casks to be used during maturation, which previously they weren't allowed. And that, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's ever tasted a, a tequila finished whiskey, um, but it, it does take on um, a lot of um, green agave kind of characters. 
for me, it doesn't always necessarily still taste like scotch. So I have to question whether that was the right move to make. Certainly, I mean, I assume it's probably because um, someone like Diageo really wanted to have a ton of tequila casks they didn't know what to do with. So they decided to try and lobby the SWA to change the regulations, <laughs> which um, would then allow them to sell more scotch whiskey in America. That's my um, cynical guess. But uh, I do think that there's enough uh, movement within the regulation to allow for creativity. And we're, I mean, look, we're seeing Scottish whiskey distilleries um, making rye whiskey. Our Beaky Highland rye is phenomenal. It is so delicious. Um, there's oat whiskey being made at Inch Derny Distillery. There's so much going on in Scotch that I don't think having regulations will harm it. it protect it and make sure that scotch whiskey always tastes like consumers expect it lives up to that brand it's protecting the scotch whiskey brand which is world renowned quite honestly yeah and i guess i guess you can always flip that in the other direction you know like rum's quite a lawless category i mean obviously you guys have the american single malt society trying to lobby and get you know a lot of regulations put through but you know at the moment technically you know 51 percent malt barley could be used and still be classified as a single malt, you know, and you're trying to look through trying to get this tightened restrictions and garner, I guess, more trust in the product from the global audience perspective as well. And without that, I think there's going to be a bit of a struggle to gain that trust and also trying to get it through, you know, we've got to look at the TTB, you know, look at all the historical facts behind bourbon you know, what, why these rules are in place for having to use new, new work for bourbon as well. So all these lobbyists that have, you know, deflected, you know, the likes of Roosevelt throughout the past, Kennedy trying to get rid of their tax breaks, it shows the power of these guys. So I really feel that you guys, I wish you guys can get it through, but you've guys got a massive uphill struggle to kind of get it um, legitimized on your side of the pond. Well, certainly it's something that, um, I mean, getting anything, through the government <laughs> generally is, is a slow process um, right now. <laughs> but, but at the same time we've we've done it in a way you know a big part of what we were trying to do is to make sure that you know we're using the examples of scotland and japan here so i think both are in play um in scotland are the rules that we've written are actually very similar to how the scottish rules are written i actually um i'll actually side with with becky here in the sense that i think that the rules are not, I know, the battle royale is going crazy. We're all just throwing... Are we agreeing on something, Matt? We are agreeing on something. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's so much the, the rules that's um, there. I mean, it's part of it and the kind of police force that is the SWA. But I, I think it's more just culture and the, and the fact that, frankly, the, the Scottish whiskey industry is super successful. Like, you're, the Scottish whiskey industry is making a lot of whiskey, selling whiskey in previously unseen numbers, it's very difficult to innovate mm -hmm. when you're staring down piles of cash that are just saying you're doing a great job. Um, so, you know, we're doing something, you know, that's, that's the rules. I mean, the whole point of making these rules was that when people buy a bottle of single malt, they're still getting what a, an international consumer expects for single malt, hundred percent malted barley made at one distillery. It's an American single malt made in America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just think culturally in the, in the United States, you have more potential for innovation. But then you, you kind of look at, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, which is Japan, which, of course, has, has huge problems with the lack of, of certification. But what I'll note here is that none of this is about necessarily quality. You know, the Japanese whiskey makers, at least the, the conventional ones, I mean, are phenomenal whiskey makers from a quality perspective. So it's, it's just kind of about what is your approach here? You can have tight regulations or tight interpretation of regulations like you see in Scotland. Um, and there's, you know, I've tasted some bad mm. Scottish whiskeys, not a lot granted, but there's been a couple where I'm like, okay, that was probably a bad idea. I've tasted, if I'm even more honest, you know, some worse American whiskeys and you have Japan where you've got some really, really, you know, loose regulations, but amazing liquid. So, you know, it, it's, I think it's more down to the culture than the laws that enforce it. The reason why we want to have those laws that are there just to make sure that when you're, a, you as a consumer buy a bottle of single malt, you get what you pay for. The quality is up to the producer. Matt, you and I have talked about this before on a, on a Zoom once where I shocked most of the American um, single malt distillers by saying that I think that there should be stricter regulations because I do believe sometimes that stricter regulations 
lead to more creativity. I mean, I know it's certainly true mm-hmm. for writers. I'll, I'll speak for us, <laughs> but like sometimes like given like a very sort of tight box as to what a story can be leads to all types of creativity. And I think our friend Eric Castro, we were talking about this, uh, Dave and I with him on a previous episode of Life Behind Bars, and he was he was paraphrasing a musician who said like no album would ever be recorded if you had all the time and all the money in the world to finish it that's so right that, like, yeah you need you need a tight deadline <laughs> i think you know the tight restrictions we're all living under at the moment has kind of um boosted all of our creativity right now i mean you'd, you'd have thought this last year we'd be doing a zoom call like this with like people from all over the well, from the us and and the uk on it i mean what's the term ian pivoting like more pivots than a ballerina that's me. Yeah. Is that you? <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm sad not to see the tutu. <laughs> yeah, Ian was recently on the cover of a uh, drinks magazine in the UK in a in a, in a tutu because of uh, all of his uh, pivoting. For uh, <laughs> you know, I guess for all the panelists, is there one you know for for all the not just America but like for all of the people making single malt around the world. Is there one rule that like, you know, besides being, you know, or I'm not even giving any caveats. Is there one rule that like you think like should be, you know, part of everybody's like, you know, kind of guidelines, no matter where you are? Um, Sell barrels that exist. I think we need to avoid the the Nantes whiskey um, situation. well, they were, they were just selling imaginary tasks. Yeah, that was quick. That was like you had that one ready to go. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I think that's that's the top rule. Just just again, kind of talking about you know what you're saying with how you make your whiskeys, Matt. Just be honest and make it of quality, and just just be you know trustworthy as well. So yeah, I think that's a massive pitfall from what was an award-winning distillery to now being obsolete. So that's a big one to watch out for. Mm. I think in terms of what makes single malt, single malt in a global sense, because whether we're talking about Scotch whiskey or American single malt or even Irish single malt or or Swedish, Australian or whatever, is the fact that that word single malt refers to 100% single malt from one distillery. And that should be the same across the board. And as far as I'm aware, that is generally the case because i think it's in the you know eu laws that you can't really sell anything unless it is that anyway so um there's that i think is so important everything else is down to creativity when it comes to single malt at least anyway um so long as resian says you approach it with honesty and transparency uh, obviously in in ireland they had a big issue there still is to an extent of um obviously the only really four distilleries creating whiskey up until very recently. And there are hundreds of brands on the market, a lot of them with Mm -hmm. the words such and such distillery written on it. But in fact, it's not obviously a distillery that exists and it's sourced liquid. So transparency. It's an office suite. And one was making single malt for a long time, which I think is also funny when a distillery wins for their single malt, like a big award and everybody in the industry knows that they didn't make said single malt. Most of it's from one <laughs> distillery. Oh, well. All the single pot still right. whiskey I mean, is from it's... one distillery. Right. Yep. I, mean, it's, I, mean, it, I mean, it's funny for us, but like, you know, as a consumer, I, I don't know, you know, I remember talking to uh, Jimmy Russell from Wild Turkey probably almost 20 years ago, and he, he thought the funniest story he'd ever read was when a journalist reviewed two bourbons, and he loved one, and he hated the other one, and Jimmy knew that there was the same whiskey in both bottles, and he thought it was hilarious. And it was like, yeah. that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, if I had to, uh, you know, the one rule, if if I were going to be a real dick about it, I, I would say uh, is that uh, single malt whiskey uh, should always be in used cooperage because uh, so much of the new cooperage single malt whiskey i take taste and not the good stuff unfortunately but so there, there's a there's a lot that is just trampled on where you don't taste the malt you don't taste the barley it just tastes like sort of a weak bourbon and that 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 bothers me because as a consumer because i feel like what have i got here i just paid a premium for single malt and all i'm tasting is you know alligator char bourbon barrel and uh you know malt is more delicate than the than the 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 
pungent stuff that we put in uh, bourbon barrels and rye barrels. And it and often it unless you're unless you're Matt who can who can bring out the subtlety in, in, in whiskey, and you know there's some others who can do it, but otherwise I I, I feel like that it's often getting just trampled over. And that 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 definitely bugs me. I mean, I, do I want to see that as a universal rule? No, because you're going to cut off the top end uh, to to prevent the bottom end. But and and I always hate to see that. But uh, I'd like some. Yeah, more. I mean, this I can definitely tell you from from our perspective. You know, I I think many whiskeys, including many Scottish whiskeys, mind you, are too cask influenced. Even just bourbon or, or oh, yeah. Oh, cherry yeah. I agree I mean, with you on you that. Know, most distilleries over there say it themselves, you know, 70 to 80% of the flavor comes from the cask. You know, we're using new oak for some of our whiskeys, but intentionally the way that we use it, plus also the way that we handle malts, which is focusing more on malt flavor to begin with using roasted malts, the Belgian yeast we use, you know, we say it's like 50, 40 or 50%, you know, cask flavor is hard to measure such a thing. Um, the thing is, but the thing is it can be done. So I, I agree with you. I actually really don't like over overly oaked whiskey no matter where it comes from or over cask influenced whiskey sometimes that takes the the form of oak specifically sometimes that's just cask which can be i mean i i've i've been to some of those spanish cellars you know where where the barrels it's american oak to begin with which people don't never never actually mention uh it gets some sherry pumped into it that nobody's ever going to drink for two years and then it goes up to Scotland, where it's filled with whiskey. And look, we used a used sherry barrel. That that barrel's barely used. I mean, two years is nothing for 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 wine aging. And uh, so, you know, that that's a scam too. I mean, or if not a scam, it's something that I would. Uh, I, I think it's a sharp practice. So yeah, I, I think I think there's fault on on both sides of the Atlantic about this. You're totally right, David. I think the the that practice of um using the the bodegas to to fill their sherry casks that just yeah. for a couple of years that is a practice that's used by some distillers obviously not all of them but what that has done is almost force a focus on the provenance of the sherry itself so there are so many more distillers now looking at um the partners that they use in Jerez and the where they're sourcing their sherry from mm -hmm. the provenance of those casks how old the casks are what they've been filled in and also the different types of sherry too uh, we're seeing different examples like a manzanilla and fino being used in in whiskey maturation now so um yeah i just i think it's an important distinction to make that there's it's not every distillery that's, that's done that I think I think you're right, but there's 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 sort of a basic problem is that you know Spanish don't generate empty empty sherry barrels. No, and and not enough people are drinking sherry. Yeah. So they're know. not in the barrel selling business, except they these are like special barrels that they fill up with sherry that nobody's going to drink. You know that's the that's the stuff they use to distill brandy with. Uh, they would never put sherry that they were going to sell as sherry in a new oak barrel. Uh, so it's it's kind of crazy. I mean. If you can get actually pry loose, uh, real old uh, Solera barrels, that's one thing. But those are very rare. I mean, it's like using it's like the new oak that steps all over so many uh, startup, you know, American malts that uh, that I wish they could they would back off on. Uh, it's a hot country here, and that oak just chews into the malt over the over the over the aging. Well, I, I mean, talking about aging, I think. Where regardless of whatever country, this idea we have to somehow move away from more expensive is better and older is better, right? Because we both all know that that is not true, no matter what country it comes from. And we've all had really expensive, really old stuff. We're like, yeah, you're excited to have it once. And they're like, oh, would you like a little more? And you're like, nah, I'm good. Like, thank you. Like, uh, I, I'm good. And it's like, no, it's like, whatever. I've, I've licked that drawer already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if it costs fifty thousand dollars, whatever it is. It, yeah. And I think that and, and I think in some of the markets, we don't have that yet, like in America and, and you know, some other places, just because it, it, it we haven't been around long enough in this game. But in some of the markets, even in Japan, we're seeing again the same kind of old, you know, kind of uh, people falling back upon these kind of um you know, real myths and, and, and sort of crutches that don't exist where it's like, you know, it has to be, you know, 14 is better than 12 and 16 is better than 10. And, and it's just, I'm not sure how we avoid that totally, but maybe it's more building up things by name, less about by, by age. 
Well, fundamentally, you avoid it by focusing on the wrong ingredients. I mean, that's that's the big you know problem at the moment is that there was so much you know money and marketing money pumped into the idea of old whiskey. Everybody ran out of old whiskey, right. and then all of a sudden, everybody's selling young whiskey again. Now, that doesn't mean that the young whiskey isn't good. Like some of the younger whiskeys that come right. out of Scotland can be really, really good. But fundamentally, if your whole premise behind where whiskey derives its flavor is coming from, as I said earlier, 70 to 80% of the flavor comes from the cask in the words of a lot of distilleries. And then you take away the cask influence time, like, what are you doing? So this is where, you know, where we've tried to do something different, not because of this, but it, it kind of ends up influencing this and focusing on the raw ingredients first and foremost. You know, we have a hard ceiling actually on some of our stuff as it ages because we don't want too much cask influence, Dave, to your point, you know, because we want to focus on the raw ingredients. And the problem is, is that the, you can't really counter the notion that you spent the past 40 years pumping out to the to the market saying that older is better and older is the source of flavor without substituting something else. You know, and like some distilleries are trying to get away with with that, just saying, oh, it's fine. Um, and there's such demand for whiskey that they're selling right. whiskey anyway. <laughs> but, you know, this is where we've we've come at. And again, we're not doing that because of this. But we've come at it from just a totally different angle, you know, bottom up, raw ingredient focused. And that's to me, that's really the answer, you know, and, and it's a compelling answer in addition to like uh, just the fact that it's different. You know, whiskey is not focused on quality of, of raw ingredients. You know, it's just not been a part of the game for a long time. So it just adds something new as well. I mean, I'd love to see more American Glenlivets, you know, where it's it's very soft and uh, and just you really just taste the. Uh, the grain and the yeast and uh, and uh, and you know the the air it's been uh, that's been circulating through the barrels, and uh, you know that that it would be nice to see that kind of diversity uh, a little more in 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 some in some American distilling, where where you have a little less kick ass because there's so many kick ass American whiskeys that are great, but I also like a you know I like a nice soft uh, I've had a hard day I want I, I want a, I want a pillow to lay to lay to lay my head on sometimes you know it's uh, especially at times like now it's you just want something that 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 uh, that's not going to grab you by the lapels but you know so much American whiskey culture is is based on one upmanship oh, so and macho that uh, that we run into issues with that one of the things just on that front is like. And I don't know if you got a sample, Dave, of, of Colere that we did. Um, I know Noah's got his sample of Colere. I did. I haven't tried it yet. So I think that's the answer to your question, because what we've, what we've been doing, like Gariana, which is an oak-focused whiskey, but actually to your point, it's only 30, only 35-ish percent of this blend is new oak on an oak-focused whiskey, mind you, and the remainder is is uh, first fill bourbon. And you can still taste the malt in it. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's 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 definitely got a frisky oak presence, but it's not dry, drawing out the other stuff. Yeah, so that was by design. But with Colere, you know, this is another whiskey where we've taken that and said, okay, Gariana is, is going to go in there. It is frisky oak in terms of its flavor profile, but Colere is all refill casks. Um, and it's all these new barley varietals, and it's kind of, Attempting to achieve exactly what you're talking about there. It's an elegant whiskey. You know, it's something that's not going to, you know, be big and brash and American, but it's something that's going to, it's going to be your nice pillow. Dave. But I, I need it, believe me. But I mean, there are pressures on American distillers uh, having to do with new oak and, and, and regulations, right? Uh, like what you get to call your whiskey if you, if you, uh, if you don't use new oak is different from what, what you get to call it if you do use new oak. And I think at least I've heard that's a that's a big problem from marketing departments. Yeah, I think one thing that's so good about the Scotch market as well as the kind of third party market. So you've got loads of really amazing independent bottlers. I mean, you get some of them over in the States, but you know, that's where we can get such a wide range of the younger expressions from you, like your likes of the James Edies of the world. And you know, actually some of my favorite Isla smoky scotches are the younger expressions, because as you're saying, Dave, they get that kind of maltiness coming through and you guys got a huge blended whiskey industry that means that you know there's that that's sort of like pulling out uh, extra barrels from all the distilleries you know i, I don't think the american distilleries are up to that uh, that that level of production where they have extra barrels yet unfortunately i wish yeah. 
I mean, but, but, but even it's so yeah, good as well. Yeah. Like, I do like that most of the time. Obviously, there's this whole thing about teaspooning certain casks and stuff here, but you know, just even being allowed <laughs> to have that provenance of like an independent bottler still yeah. being able to allow to show where they've got the cask from as well here, which is something I think um, is something we, we've got that maybe slight advantage, maybe because of, as you're saying, the forecasting of making such large amounts for blends kind of falls in our favor sometimes with the kind of independent bottlers, but is a great thing here i'm jealous of that i got yeah, like, like, like age isn't quality yes it's more expensive but you can get you know a real bang for your buck on more of the kind of younger expressions out here constantly trying to just to open people's minds to that fact that it doesn't have to be the most expensive whiskey to be the most delicious one I was I was thinking of Aeneas McDonald saying after 12 years, you know, whiskey is done. <laughs> and you really after that it gets slimy according to him. I want to come back to this idea that um American distillers are kind of um chained to having to use new oak and obviously that impacts how long the whiskey can stay in the barrel, not you know, with some in the climate as well, which which is an important factor. Um, the whole topic we're discussing here is what is the future of American single malt and can it rival Scotch whiskey? So if American single malt can't command the same kind of age statements as Scotch whiskey, what success is there for American single malt in markets like Asia, China, Japan, where there's a huge uh, emphasis on age equals quality? And I don't think that that's going to go any go away anytime soon. Certainly here, even in the UK, it's a huge emphasis. And I, th I think it's, it's, it's a, a yeah, something to bear in mind. I know that you're absolutely right. But there are a lot of distillers in Scotland who have entered different Asian markets with an 18 because 18 is, mm -hmm. you know, like a lucky number and, and and to capitalize on that. And I mean, even even somebody like Westling, I mean, you guys first generation American single malt here and it's 10 years. So I mean, we're still eight years away from an 18 year old if 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 you even want that. But like that's that's the big thing is is we don't want it. You know, I don't care. There's there's plenty of people out there who who can plenty of distillers out there who will fulfill that thing for people who want that process. But what we find um, genuinely, like not everywhere, but in certain places, especially most major American cities, um, Europe especially is really good about this. Less the UK actually, but like you know Northern Europe, France, um, the Nordics, you know Germany, like these countries where we talk about terroir and provenance and raw ingredient quality. You know, the comparison is very easy. It's like, you know, do you know that good quality wine is made in the vineyard? Yes or no? And of course, anybody who knows wine knows that that's true. Can you imagine that whiskey could be the same way if there was just a different approach? And of course, the, the, the nut of it all is like it has to, it has to pay off, right? Like you, it actually has to work mm -hmm. and it has to be really good. And so that's, that's the big thing for us. And there's, there's room for everybody. You know, there's room for countries, there's a lot of countries that drink a lot of whiskey, but aren't right necessarily for Westland at this time, because their whole thing is like, more susceptible to the marketing of, of age, you know, including, including many like, single malt whiskey nerds or enthusiasts, you know, I, I think if you had also, uh, you know, in the future, if you with there's got to there's got to be a need for for education about uh, how whiskey ages in America versus how it ages in Scotland. You need to show people a map. You know, New York is on the same latitude as Rome. I mean, we're we're pretty far south here. It's warm. We're you know we're talking like cognac level uh, climate aging rather than uh, than Scotland level climate aging, and that's got to be factored in uh, in the education. I mean, it's we're more of like a rum uh, maturation type uh, climate than 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 a Scotch whiskey type climate. Numbers on, on, on bottles have to be understood a little differently. Those numbers aren't going to understand themselves. People are going to see uh, in, in, in a lot of foreign markets, they're going to see five years and say, mm. why would I drink a five-year when I can drink a 12? Because they don't understand what five years does in America. But, but we've been paying for years to keep that education under wraps. So that, that's <laughs> the, 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 the less of that education, the better yeah. for us. You know? we're, we're doing quite well, well you know, you. America, we're not... Not doing great on education right now, so yeah. Yeah, I don't think you've got a lot to worry about. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I think Becky, your point is 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 more than valid because we also, you know, not that long ago, you know, you talked to the bourbon distillers, and it'd be a similar thing. Like, look, bourbon, great bourbon, 
eight is the max. Like we don't need to go past eight. Eight's crazy. Don't go past eight. Eight's terrible. My grandfather never aged whiskey longer than eight. And now fast forward to 2020 and the, all the bourbon that I'm getting is like 15, 16, you know, 12 years old, 10 years old. And it's like, it's creeping ever older. So and yeah, I, and some I of it's too old now. Right. I mean, that's because yeah. I, I mean, I think it's the forces that you're talking about, Becky, that are international and even Americans, you know, pushing for ever older age statements, ever older whiskey, whether or not we really want it or whether or not we'll like it better. We just think that we're going to like it better, which is exactly it's the, it's terrible. it's the classic case of a, uh, a a person who doesn't really drink whiskey or know anything about it walking up to a bar and going, "Give me the oldest whiskey you've got," and and you're just like, "Oh, right, okay." And it's you, you get it at whiskey shows. There's people oh. coming up. Oh, I'll go for the the thirty year old. Like, yeah, but do you know what? Actually, the twelve is really nice. No, I want the thirty. Go straight for it. <laughs> just give them like a block of wood at the end like here you go this is yeah. this this wood is 200 years old like be a deer and lick it <laughs> it was actually i actually used to do a um a class at the whiskey show which was um around like getting people to taste whiskey um which was um really um young but tasted amazing and then old whiskey which was just so over oat it was just it'd been cast for far too long and it was just disgusting and not great and have people taste it and tell us what they thought and and it was so interesting when you actually told them well this is a 30 year old whiskey but this is normally what you would want to go for but it, age doesn't mean quality it's just a number yeah. quality is something else entirely so you shouldn't equate the two together and it's really interesting to see people's eyes open around that you know, it's 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 interesting because I actually feel like we're talking about a thing here that's that's you know the ages quality thing, and this is true in some some markets, I guess, or some cultures. But I think that uh, Scotland and the American bourbon industry pursues that strategy at its peril. Um, I mean, this is to come back to the central focus here of of what American single malt is doing different from Scotland. You know look at the next generation of, of whiskey drinkers, right? You look at young whiskey drinkers, vastly more diverse, vastly more interested in a variety of other subjects. And a lot of them, especially in this country, but also true in Europe, growing up on, again, more, they're looking for things that are more rooted in provenance, in authenticity, in traceability, all of these things. And, and the age thing is, you know, that's, in many ways, a relic of, and it's, it's a powerful relic, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's been around for a long time. And it, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of whiskey people that like Weston will never be for because they can never open their mind enough to think that, you know, a, a five-year-old whiskey can, can earn X amount of points or gold medals or, or whatever. This is just simply like their brain breaks. But there are so many other people for whom, like, provenance in all things that they buy, and besides just whiskeys, like, you look at Mezcal, right? Look at the boom in Mezcal in this country. None of that is aged. It's massively complex, massively terroir-focused. Um, it's probably the most terroir-focused spirit category in the entire world, um, if you ask me. And all of that stuff is coming up from, you know, young, diverse bartenders, drinkers who are we're coming at it from a fresh perspective and that that's ripe territory in the world of whiskey. And honestly, we talk like, I'd rather have that generation of young tastemakers who want to try something that's rooted in provenance rather than a frankly old marketing based <laughs> rationale for buying old whiskey. You know, that's, that's something that if, if they want to chase that, that's fine. And I know that some distilleries do some in Scotland do some don't some in bourbon industry do some don't. Um, I think it's a mistake, frankly. In our chat window, somebody's asking, is there ever like a chemical analysis? Like, is there any real benefit to aging longer? And, and and really, I mean, the only thing that I can think of is that maybe, you know, in some of the Isla whiskeys, you know, after mm -hmm. a certain amount of time, the, the peat like mellows out into really interesting flavors, or sometimes even you get like tropical flavors, like, you know, like, mango and papaya but that's i mean obviously very rare and not i'm not sure that they set out to make mango flavored whiskey no matter how much i like it i don't, I don't think that that was the goal um but i i can't i mean can anybody think of any other area where like you're using a certain type of wood or or barley strain where like it has to, like after eight years magically it, it becomes a 
it goes from being a caterpillar into a butterfly and it emerges into, you know. I, I can think of a number of Scotch whiskeys that I've had at like eight and 10 years old yeah. that were harsh and thin. And then you have them at 12 and 18. And, you know, because of the, the extra evaporation, the, 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 the texture gets thicker. You know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not congeners that are evaporating, you know? Uh, so it, it, it gets, you get suddenly a richer texture and the whole thing snaps into focus. And you know, what seemed kind of thin and fumey is suddenly uh, just uh, delicious. I mean, some, some things take that long and, you know, same with rums. Some some rums uh, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, new are just frightening, and then you have them after like Caribbean aging, like four four years down there, and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, there was there was a there was a butterfly hang in in that uh, in that barrel. Yeah, I think also we got to also factor in barrel sizes here because you know obviously the legislation. In Scotland, we can go yeah. up to seven litre barrels. So, you know, something that's 20 years old in a seven litre barrel as opposed to like a quarter cask is going to be a massive different spectrum of flavour as well. So, you know, I think that plays a massive part in, in the ageing process too. But they get re-racking as well, so that, which is such a common practice that the majority of costs that are floating around the Scotch whisky industry are ex-bourbon and they've been used like two three maybe even four times before they're used up completely and quite often um after maybe like 10 years or so in that kind of cask it's not had a huge amount of influence it's maybe um extracted some of the uh undesirable congeners that are in a part of that but really to get the most out of this book you need to be back into something else so whether that's a different type of bourbon cask or a wine cask or sherry or port or something else so just to sort of meet, give it that extra maturation, but also nuance it with a little mm -hmm. different flavor. And as Ian says, like the different sides of the cask as well would then also impact it in a different way. And all of that's really a practice that it doesn't really exist in American whiskey. It doesn't some. One of the, uh, one of the greatest whiskeys I, I ever tasted was right out of the cask in Canada. And it was a 12 year old corn whiskey uh, that was in a barrel that I swear was 50 years old and used so many times. I mean, it was the most pathetic beat up old barrel. Any normal distillery would have gotten rid of it like eight <laughs> fills ago, right. but uh, there it was. And uh, the whiskey was just so soft and pleasant and rich and chewy and uh, and delightful because there was just nothing nothing in that barrel to get in the way of the corn you know and and are you sure this isn't a dolly parton song dave this sounds like yeah, a dolly yeah. parton song about the the world's saddest bourbon barrel or uh, dolly and i are working on that right now as a matter of fact <laughs> so it's going to be on our next album <laughs> Amazing. We got a real good pedal steel player. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> well, we're, we're as we as we come up on our our uh, world tour, um, fairly friendly, I have to say, for our battle royale. Um, any last <laughs> jabs, compliments, um, thoughts? Well, I guess uh, one one thing I wanted to mention this whole discussion is about whether um, American single malt can rival the might of Scotch. But I think actually the, the one category that um, America needs to be concerned about is Irish whiskey and just how big that's becoming in the US. Um, I think I saw to, today a, a news story that Irish whiskey sales in the US is set to overtake Scotch um, in the next 10 years. So I think maybe that's the one to look out for, considering the amount of new Irish whiskey distilleries that there are now. There's over 30 Irish whiskey distilleries operating now and that's just in the last 10 years there were four in 2012 there were just four and now there's over 30 so yeah i think that's probably the one to to look out for yeah i think also to look out for as well as you know something really happened in the scottish scotch whiskey industry in the late 70s 80s the the whiskey loch which is where we kind of overproduced and we're kind of seeing that now so many distilleries opening up all the the bigger distilleries are doubling, tripling capacity. And to me, you know, as much as I love to see this increase continue, it just it just resonates a lot to what happened in the late 70s and 80s here, where they're just literally dumping whiskey away, hence the whiskey lock name. And you saw amazing distilleries like Port Ellen, you know, Brora having to close down because of this. So that, that's one thing I'm quite cautious about for the next 10 years is 
this maybe could happen again to the whiskey industry. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real danger. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, I, I think the distilleries that come out ahead are, are the ones uh, like Westland who have, you know, what we call a USP, a unique selling proposition. We're not doing the same thing that everybody else does. We're, we're being really careful to uh, develop our products and not just fill barrels. And that that applies in Scotland too. I mean, the the most longevity in in Scotland, you've got distilleries like uh, you know uh, Lagavulin, et cetera, and uh, and and uh, Talisker that have been there for a hundred plus years because they really do something unique, and that's uh, uh, that's really important. I mean, that's an important lesson right there. Is the ones who just stick to their guns are the ones who have been there the longest. We'll see. I mean, it's a big evolving. I mean, the industry is evolving in a way that it never has before. All industries evolve, of course, but whiskey has reached this point, I think, where it it has achieved something that it never has before. There's always been cycles, but I do think that whiskey as a global category is in a new place. And there's going to be decisions about who goes what direction um, and what you want to do. And frankly, that's matching back to consumer expectation, what people want. And that's not a, that's not a singular thing, of course, as we're talking about earlier, some people, you know, want status seeking, you know, high age statement whiskey. And some people, you know, will want, you know, hyper provenance terroir whiskeys. And it's not like either of them are bad. It's just that they're different. Um, And I think that's, you know, there's plenty of space out there when it comes to the, the original question, like where can American single bolts, um, compete relative to the Scottish whiskey industry. You know, I think that there's so much, there's so much room. I think, you know, it's, it's such a funny thing. People think about this industry that like people think it's, it's finished and it's static, but it's not, it's dynamic, you know, and it's, it's going to evolve really quickly and not just with American whiskeys to Becky's point, you know, like it's not just the American and Scottish whiskey industries. It's, it's Ireland. um, It's all these other countries that are producing amazing, you know, kind of provenance. India making great whiskey, you know, also some really terrible whiskey. <laughs> Becky wrote a great story about Scandinavian whiskey for the beast a couple yeah. months ago. I mean, it, I think you're right, Matt. I mean, we, we've seen, you know, the, the 20th century was a lot of ups and downs and probably more bad times than good times for, for distillers. Um, but, you know, I, I have high hopes for the 21st century that we're really, you know, just at the beginning and, and the fact that we're now seeing, people really all over the world drinking, you know, single malt and, and unique single malts and all types of whiskeys, I think is a really encouraging, you know, we're, we're more popular arguably than ever before. And I think really we're, we're, we're just scratching the surface of this. So I'm just glad that American, uh, modern American single malts are doing a lot better than the one before prohibition where <laughs> the leading brand Duffy's pure malt had to close uh, with the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act because it turned out it had no malt whiskey in it in it whatsoever. So, <laughs> I think you guys are doing better. You're starting at the bottom and making making the product rather than making the labels. So that's good. It admittedly, is a low bar. Yeah, yeah it's a low bar. <laughs> but you know, I'll, I'll take any bar I can climb over. <laughs> we should all reconvene in in ten every ten years to see to check in. Maybe we'll switch sides at that point and. Uh, Looking forward to it. Uh, thank you all for, for joining us this evening. Thank you. Thanks, Good to see you all. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. <laughs>